0: And this is episode number 44 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Okay, um, when last we left off with episode 43, um, like I said, I'm going to accelerate the recording schedule a little bit in order to get to the Chicago trip. I'm working on that as we speak. Um, I've got some interesting information. Um, I'm going to give you guys a heads up, though. Um, the manner in which I'm going to do these episodes is pretty, uh, heavy as far as information and opinions go, so these recordings are probably going to be at least, probably an hour and a half, maybe over two hours, considering I'm going to be doing rundowns, reviews, and on-the-road segments, and also, uh, story time in regard to my mindset after the fact and of course the on the road segment will be uh they were recorded pretty much in real time as i was you know going to chicago going to these places leaving these places and of course going home so buckle in, folks, because these are going to be probably the longest episodes I've ever done. I think the longest episode I've ever recorded for this podcast is about 2 hours and 20 minutes, so they're going to be somewhere around there. So, consider yourself warned. (laughs) Okay, let's see. Um, Gaming-wise, I got onto the New World uh, bandwagon. Um, I love the game in There's a lot of hype going around with it, even though now I think a lot of interest is starting to wane for it because um, aside from doing crafting, once you fulfill the main storyline, there's not all that much to do, and I'm hoping that Amazon puts out expansion packs and things like that for this game because it's beautiful. It's very, very time intensive. It sort of reminds me of a light version of like um, Morrowind um, and games like that. You're doing a lot of running around at first until you can get to s- certain places. Then you can teleport for a fee for your characters. Um, there are multiple servers in different regions. So you can actually make a bunch of characters even though you're limited to just two characters per server um, but there are multiple servers in each group so you can make as many characters as you want. Um, uh, let's see the character I'm running right now is a basically a sword and shield fighter with a rifle backup. Uh, as uh, I get more comfortable with the game, I'm probably gonna use you know try to do um, fire, mage or healer or a multi-class of those um i love the game it's very pretty and yeah you can get really really lost just doing the crafting of items and for uh purchasing uh armor and weapons and items for your character as you go on um it's a very very interesting concept um, basically they're saying uh, there's this gateway to another world in uh, the Bermuda Triangle and a lot of ships in the uh, what 14th, 15th century, I think somewhere around there, um, a lot of ships went in there once they heard about what was there and they got trapped in this new world of Eternum. It's really, really cool. I like it a lot. Um, aside from that, I've been playing Streets of Rage 4 and Drift and Battletech when the game decides to work correctly. Um, I have been playing uh, Pentasma, which is an actual um, tribute to the game Defender uh, written by... I can't remember his name. Oh, goodness. I want to say his name is Kevin Lamb or something like that. I should look it up. As a matter of fact, I'm going to pause this so that I can look it up because the man deserves a little credit. I'll be right back. The man's name is Jong Park, and he's a really good programmer. Uh, he made this Defender tribute with a modern twist to it. There are power-ups. There are different ways to play the game. That's a lot of fun. I really like it. It's a nice welcome change of pace from all the RPGs and stuff that I've been playing as of late. So, yeah. Um, there is a Williams Defender Unite group on facebook that i'm a part of and that's where he posts most of his uh exploits he's now i think he just finished a stargate tribute and using like the pico 8 system and it looks really good so this man has some talent i mean if there's a gaming company out there that's interested in using or excuse me doing um you know, tributes to the old school games and so forth, you should hire this man to do the programming because he's really, really good. Uh, Let's see, aside from that, um, of course I go to the arcade in Brighton to work this evening, and, you know, just doing the normal thing, working my jobs, paying the bills, you know, had to pay a bunch of money to get my car fixed this week, so, you know, I'm a little bummed out by it, but it needed to happen. Uh, aside from that, you know, just living life and doing the normal stuff. Um, let's see, I did check, do a check of emails and still nothing out there, so once again, um, if you have any questions, thoughts, uh, games you really like that I haven't covered to this point and you really would like me to cover them, hey, get a hold of me and make the request. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com. Also... There's a phone number for voicemails. The number is 734-743-2433. I am on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. On Facebook, just run a search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. There is a discussion group that goes on with that. Even though it's been pretty dormant as of late, I think I need to devote some time and some effort into getting some discussions going there. Um, let's see, on uh, Instagram, my uh, screen name is at ArcadeAddictBrian, uh, Twitter is arcadeaddict_b, underscore B, and Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So, once again, multiple ways of getting a hold of the show, and hey, get a hold of me out here. I would love to answer some questions to the best of my knowledge. Remember, I'm not a full-on video game expert, even though I do know my way around video games, just not as much as some people. You know, if you got questions and if I can answer them, hey, get a hold of me and let's talk about it. Anyway, so I've got a really information-packed episode today, and it is right now as we speak almost 7 in the morning, and I want to get this in before my son and my uh, girlfriend wake up for the day, so let's get right on to it. Top Tens Top Tens Shooters Ever since playing Tank with my brother back in the middle 70s uh, right up to playing Star Wars Battle Pod at the Arcade Brighton in the modern day I've always loved shooters Though fighting games and beat-em-ups rank a close second and third shooters have always had that special place in my heart and probably always will Um, let's see, so once again, this is a top 10, not in any particular order, and, you know, I thought these were the best 10 shooters that I've ever played in my life. Um, there are, of course, so many shooters that have been, um, in the arcades going all the way back to the early 70s, to the modern day, and there are so many, I couldn't even begin to list them all. My honorable mentions, I think, mention about 16, maybe a little more than that, but I had to limit myself, otherwise I'd have been uh, listing off games from now until the cows come home, so let's get right to this, shall we? Okay, first off, Galaga. Um, Of course, this is my favorite, one of my favorite all-time shooters and all-time video games, uh, as I've said uh, when I did Galaga back in, I think, Episode 4 or something like that. So, you know, once again, uh, this is the first shooter I was truly obsessed with uh, since probably Space Invaders when that came out in 78. Um, I can't tell you how many times playing this game in the Bridgeport train station made me late for school in 1982 and 1983. Uh, The first time I actually saw Galaga was at the Rexall drugstore in the mall, and I think this was the first game they got. Um, I love playing Galaga to this day, even though I just played straight nine the game and not get the highest score possible. As a matter of fact, I was at Pinball Pete's today, and I did check the uh, Galaga Ms. Pac-Man 25th anniversary machine to see if I still had the high score, and I still do. Um, yeah, that was, what, 999,970 points. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think my all-time high score is like 1.7 million or so uh, because I think when I played it at, um, at Pinball Pizza, as a matter of fact, and I tried to straight nine it, and I messed up. And instead of abandoning ship, I said, you know what, I'm going to try and do it a second time. Now, the problem with that is, is that once you get oh, what's the last free man that you get at a multiple of 70,000, it is 980,000, I think. Once you get that free guy, you don't get anymore. more. So, it's a true test of your skill to get through all the way uh, to straight nine at a second time. So, that's what I tried to do, um... And if I really wanted to, like, go long distance on it, I'm probably good for about 5 million points if I really wanted to spend a day doing that. Um, I find straight-nining machines a lot more interesting than just going for the highest score possible. I mean, of course, you can, especially with free-play machines, you can do the two-player trick where... um, There are two tricks involved. One is to where... The, you can get the enemies not to shoot at you. And then uh, you play the second player because that's the one that actually records the score past 1 million points. I think that they uh, came out with a chip uh, that not only saved your high scores when you turned the machine off. But I think it also, the latest ones I think record the score all the way up to... 9.9 million you know before it turns over at 10 million I think that's what it is but I'm not 100% sure I should look that up but anyway that's Galaga um, Mooncresta uh, I remember when I first started playing this game at the mom and pop newsstand on Main Street as I've described in the early episodes um, the colors and sound effects were straight up captivating uh, the game wasn't easy but at least the first five five levels are fairly forgiving then things start getting fast, not just for the speed, but then certain enemies start shooting at you as well. Uh, then disappearing from view, only to ram you when they reappear if you're in the way. Um, that... I used to rack up pretty decent scores at Uncresta, uh in excess of 100,000 points. Um, but yeah, it got so ridiculously fast, and then... Uh, the enemy starts shooting at you as well. Yeah, they. It, it, at that point, they're trying to just run you off the machine. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's Mooncresto, Star Wars. Um, if Galaga is number one, Star Wars is one A when it comes to shooters. Um, you know, I could go back and forth between Galaga and Star Wars. You know, you know one and one A. You know, however you want to say it. But, um, when this game came out in 83, I was completely blown away. Atari got it so right with this one, and they got it so wrong with The Empire Strikes Back in 85 and Return of the Jedi in 84. Um, Return of the Jedi was actually a pretty decent game, but, I mean, they could have done a better job of that game. Um... As a matter of fact, they sort of realized it by making Return of the Jedi a raster scan game that it wasn't captivating as captivating to the game-playing audience as the original Star Wars was. So they went back to it with the Empire Strikes Back in 85, but the way that game is programmed, it's not nowhere near as interesting or fascinating as the original Star Wars. That's just how I figure. Um, I still play Star Wars to this day, and I do better at the game now that I'm in my 50s than I did in my teenage years. It's still a little weird to see. I still hold all three high scores at the arcade in Brighton, and it's something to be proud of, even though someone who's really good can probably, with the way the machine is set up, knock that score out in short order. It's just that nobody who's that as good has come there yet to do so and as long as that happens well i can still be proud of myself right um let's see 1943 okay don't get me wrong i like 1942 but even getting halfway through the game is a severe test of your stamina never mind finishing the game um when capcom released 1943 i like the game much better the pace wasn't quite as frenetic as 1942 was when you got to the middle of uh, to the two-thirds point of the game. Uh, it was no longer one hit and done. You had an energy bar that could afford you three or four hits but the downside was is that if you were shot down then it was game over. Uh, the enemies were more varied and you could select different kinds of firepower with your power-ups and actually maintain it uh, by getting more power-ups. Uh, the different um, firepower was on a timer and as you went through the game, if you got the proper power icon that co- coincided with the firepower you were using, it would extend that time. Um, it, like I said, it, there was a lot more there, but like I said, at least as far as I got in the game, and I think like my, my high score on that game is like, I want to say like 400,000 or something like that, um, the pace wasn't quite as crazy. So yeah, it just was a lot better of an experience for me so it gets his just due here time pilot well i just covered time pilot in episode 43 um the game drew me in almost immediately uh, the controls were simple but the goal of the game seemed to be just as simple but that's where the simplicity ended it started off easy enough and kept getting harder and pretty much never stopped until your game was over I mean, I loved its sequel, Time Pilot 1984, but the original just had it. It was perfect. I still play that game at uh, the arcade in Brighton, uh, before, usually before I go on shift at the arcade. So, you know, just the fact that I play it as much as I do now, that pretty much means, hey, that's how it gets its place in my top ten. Uh, Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator. My second favor, favorite vector shooter game, with of course Star Wars taking the top spot. Uh, Sega did a phenomenal job with this game, making it an action version of the venerable Star Trek computer games of the 1970s and 80s, with a nod to the original series, as you have to destroy Nomad before advancing to the next sector. The action gets frenetic in the later sectors, and you have to do resource man- management, as well as blasting Klingons before they blast you just a fantastic game. Love it. Uh, Space Tactics. You want to combine Missile Command and Space Invaders? Play Space Tactics. (laughs) This game is so much fun once you learn what's going on and how to shoot down the aliens. This was a great early game by Sega and it was a real twist to both games, marrying it and then giving it a twist. Um, It's a fairly rare game too and I've only seen it twice out in the wild. Uh, The first time was at the James E. Strait shows, and if I remember correctly, it was some arcade in Orlando, where I saw it a second time. Uh, Let's see, Defender. Um, As I said previously, this game was evolutionary, not just revolutionary. Uh, at the time of its release and yeah, I still maintain that I saw it in the summer of 1980 and not 1981 as everybody seems to think and as it's been presented in places like uh, Wikipedia and other video game websites Um, but I'll leave that argument alone (laughs) Um, no game out there at the time looked like that, sounded like that and for sure nothing played like that it was intimidating, captivating, and thrilling at all the same time. I remember uh, those machines were lined up four abreast at the Jamesy e. Straight, Straight Show's arcade tent like it was yesterday. Um, I was in awe of this game from day one, and hardly anyone wanted to play it at first because it was just that damned hard. <laughs> the 50 cents I threw into that machine at the time lasted me maybe, maybe 15 seconds. Uh, but once it came to the Trumbull Mall Arcade, uh, later that year, I started to, uh, try to get passable at it, if not good, and it took me about a year of constant play to do so. I wa- I'm not a master at it, and I wa- certainly wasn't back then, but I wasn't a scrub either. Um, at the time of this writing, which was August 13th, um, and I just talked about it, now that I think about it, um... I found that uh, tribute game called Pantasma on Steam for 99 cents. And it's a great game with a modern twist to it. And so even to this day, the legacy of Defender lives on. Let's see Asteroids. uh, The first true free flight shooter, or at least the one I ever saw. The first one I ever saw. Um, I think. Uh, space War, pre, of course, Space War predates this by a couple of years, but I think I didn't see Space Wars until uh, the James E. Strait shows in probably the summer of 79, so the times are really close, but I think I saw Asteroids first. Um, I remember when this game came to my home arcade, and I was just blown away, and a lot of people were as well. I talked about it in depth way back in episode number 2. I still play it to this day either at the arcade in Brighton or in emulation. I also have spoken about Nova Drift, which is a loving tribute to Asteroids combined with several other games. Um, Asteroids deserves a spot here for being among the first of its kind. Let's see, uh, and finally, uh, Vanguard. I developed a serious addiction to this game even though there were only two places that had it back in the day. Uh, the Lafayette Plaza Arcade and the James E. Strait Show's Arcade Tent, so I didn't get to play it very much, which kind of, which kind of sucked. But when I played it, I always was just uh, glued to it. I loved it. It's a great shooter. Um, it came out in 1980, which is which was more which made it even more amazing in my opinion. Um... I didn't really get to play it regularly until I discovered emulation, and then I, once I found it at the arcade in Brighton, every time I went there, I played it. Um, the game could be forgiving or exceedingly cruel. Most of the time, it was somewhere in the middle. Um, love that game. I covered it uh, several episodes ago. So if you want to know about the, the nuts and bolts of it, uh, please uh, reference that episode. I'd have to look it up, but I'm trying to get this done before my son wakes up, so I got a boogie. Okay, uh, honorable mentions. Um, there are literally too many to mention, and I know I'm leaving some out, but these are the ones that came to mind immediately. Uh, Tempest, Twin Cobra, Flying Shark, nineteen eighty. Oh, excuse me, nineteen forty-two. Time Pilot eighty-four. Gyrus, Bosconian, which I will cover in the next segment. Uh, Carnival. Missile Command, Space Invaders, Scramble slash Super Cobra, Berserk, Frenzy, Sinistar, Moon Patrol, Gondomania, Stargate, Robotron, Smash TV, Starship One, Starfire, Starhawk, Star Castle, Lunar Rescue, and Akari Warriors. And that's where I had to cut it off. Because <laughs> like I said, I could list at least 40 to 50 games as honorable mentions in this category. So those are my top 10s with honorable mentions, of course. Okay, you got any thoughts about this? Um, If there's a shooter that you love that didn't make this list and you think should get its just due, hey, get a hold of me, ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com, and we can talk about it. Alright then, let's get right on to the next segment, which is, Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Harding in front seats like a teenager. Hoppy, oh, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying, wet our stomachs, chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this. I'm not too old for this. You will admit it. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. Like We're, We're not, not too old. Too old for this It's like you yeah. believe. We're not too old for I'm this not gonna shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cooler. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced, Bosconian? Okay. One of my all-time favorite shooters, it is on my in my honorable mentions as I just talked about. Um I thought this was a sequel to Galaga. And with the way the game looks and way the game plays, um, you know, I decided to cut myself some slack because, yeah, it's it was fairly easy, especially back in '81, to mistake that because of the way the way your fighter looks. It's identical to the fighter in Galaga, except now it's in a free-flight, multi-directional shooter game. So, anyway, let's get right on with uh, the description from Wikipedia. Bosconian is a multi-directional scrolling shooter arcade game, which was developed and released by Namco in Japan in 1981. In North America, it was manufactured and distributed by Midway Games. The goal of the game is to earn as many points as possible by destroying enemy missiles and bases using a ship which shoots from both the front and the back. Bosconian became the first shooting game to feature diagonal movement. Uh, Bosconian was commercially successful in Japan And received positive critical reception But did not achieve the global commercial success Of other shooter games From the golden age of uh, arcade video games Which is 1980 Or excuse me 1978 to 1983 Um, The the game was ported to home computers As Bosconian 87 in 1987 And spawned two sequels Blast Off in 1989 And Final Blaster in 1990 the game has subsequently been regarded by critics as influential in the shoot em up genre. Okay, gameplay. The objective of Bosconians is to score as many points as possible by destroying enemy missiles and bases. The player controls the Starfighter, a ship that can move in eight directions and fires forward and backwards simultaneously. Uh, Throughout the game, the Starfire stays affixed to the center of the screen as it moves. During each round, several green enemy bases known as Base Stars... Yeah, and they kind of look like Cylon Base Stars from Battlestar Galactica, but we'll leave that alone. Um, The Base Stars appear, all of which must be destroyed in order to advance to the next round. The number of bases increases with each round. Each base has six globe-like cannons arranged in a hexagon around a central core. To destroy a base, the player must either shoot the core or destroy all six cannons, the latter of which gives the player extra points. In later levels, the cores begin defending themselves by opening and closing while launching missiles. A radar display on the right-hand side of the screen shows where the enemies are located relative to the player. The game also features a color-coded alert system with voice commands. Additionally the player must avoid or destroy stationary asteroids mines and a variety of enemy missiles and ships which attempt to collide with his or her ship enemy bases will also occasionally launch a squadron of ships in formation attacks destroying the leader causes all the remaining enemies to disperse but destroying all enemies in formation scores a bonus uh, scores extra bonus points A spy ship will also appear occasionally, which must be destroyed, or the game's alert system will turn to red, regardless of how long the player is taken. Throughout the game, a digitized voice alerts the player to various events, such as incoming enemies or an approaching spy ship. Let's see the plot. Uh, The game takes place after the fictional rock war. An intergalactic conflict between mankind and aliens, which ended with the aliens destroying Earth with missile-firing space stations known as orbitals and enslaving all humans. In an attempt to fight back against the aliens and regain their independence, humans built a spacecraft known as the Starfighter with the best technology they could find. However, only one such vehicle could be built. The game involves the unnamed pilot of the Starfighter defeating aliens to save the Earth. Interesting plot, I like it. Uh, Let's see, Uh, the reception. In Japan, Bosconian was the 7th highest grossing arcade game of 1981, according to the annual Game Machine chart. Game Machine later listed Bosconian in their August issue as the 22nd most successful table arcade cabinet of the month. However, the game was less successful internationally. Due to to the rising popularity of Galaga and a shortage of arcade machines for the game, many of the Bosconian machines that were not selling were transformed into Galaga machines. That actually makes sense. Galaga over here in the United States was such a phenomenon that, yeah, I can certainly understand it, even though I think Bosconi is is pretty interesting as well. Uh, To continue... Upon release, Bosconian received generally positive reviews. Video Games Magazine referred to the game as, quote, a treat for Galaxian fans, unquote, and opining that while it did not, quote, break ground insofar as graphics, sounds, weaponry, and antagonists were concerned, quote, it had, quote, a terrific eight-way joystick that has great maneuverability, end quote. Electronic Games called it, quote, A real space gamer's delight, end quote, highly praising its 360-degree movement and the ship's simultaneous front and rear fire, which they noted made it the first game to feature either element as well as its graphics, gameplay, and other mechanics. Uh, Mike Roberts and Steve Phipps of Computer Gamer reviewed the arcade game several years after its release in 1985, stating it was, quote, good value and still, quote, enjoyable to play, end quote. In a retrospective 1998 review of the game, Brett Allen Weiss of All Game wrote that the game's front-rear firing system, radar display, and alert system, quote, helped make the game a cut above the average shooter of the era, end quote. In a re- another retrospective review in 2018 of the Sharp X68000 version of the game, Akiva PC Online praised the conversion's accurate portrayal of the arcade original and the wonderful rearranged soundtrack. Beep criticized the Sword M5 version of the game for its poor quality, low difficulty level, and lack of features from the arcade original, such as the voice samples. Let's see, and the accolades. Uh, Bosconian won the 1983 Arcade Award for Best Science Fiction Fantasy coin-op Game, beating both Atari's Gravatar and Sega's Zaxxon. Wow, that's some stiff competition. <laughs> In 1998, Japanese publication Gamist selected Bosconia as one of the best arcade games of the era, com- complementing its Rally X-like radar system, atmosphere, and addictive nature. They have cited it as being an influential shooter for its vast game world and setting, labeling it as, quote, an excellent introductory game, end quote, for new players to the genre. And let's do the legacy real quick. Bosconian has been considered influential for other multidirectional shooters and has been called, quote, a granddaddy of the multidirectional shooter, end quote, by Retro Gamer. Bosconian served as the main inspiration for the 1983 arcade game Sinistar and as an inspiration for the 1982 arcade game Time Pilot. Yeah, how about that? Uh, Botsconian later appeared in several Namco Museum compilations for PlayStation and other consoles, including Namco Museum Volume 1, Namco Museum 50th Anniversary, Namco Museum Virtual Arcade, and Namco Museum Megamix. The game has also been released as part of Jack's Pacific's TV game controller. I remember those. I remember that I wanted to actually get those but then I found out about Namco Museum and I went in that direction. So yeah, that's all that's the information on Wikipedia. Let's see my experiences with it. Um I've been trying to rack my brain and I can't remember when I saw this game first. I think I think the first time I saw it because as I was reading this, and my brain started going, I think the first time I ever saw Bosconian was at uh, the Liggett's Drugstore. But, let's see, Milford Rec got it. Spanky's got it. Um, I could find it in other places, just that I'm trying to remember. I think that's the first time I ever saw it. It was at the Liggett's Drugstore in uh, the Trumbull Mall. Uh, let's see... As I've said before, I originally thought the game was the sequel to Galaga, which I was playing constantly at that point. Uh, It's a fun, yet at times frustrating game, and I I still feel that way today. I played Bosconian last week before I started my shift at the arcade, and yeah. (laughs) It's just one of those games that, yeah, it can really get under your skin if things aren't going well for you. But let's see well, but let's get on to time for some strategy so I can give you a, a few tips about this game because yeah, it, you you need to have an understanding of it. So, here we go. Time for some strategy. There. What happened? What that that? Time for some strategy. The first thing you have to understand about this game is that the enemy has a movement advantage over you. The missile ships they send against you can move in a multitude of directions, but you can only move in 8 and after a few levels they will get a speed advantage as well. It's not easy to do, but you have to learn to make sharp cuts with your ship, usually 90 degrees, to shake them off your tail for a few seconds or at least line up your shots to take them out. Uh, Beware of asteroids and mines, especially the mines. While they can be shot for points, it's much more to your advantage to try and manipulate enemy missile ships into colliding with them, and that does take practice, but it's possible. Uh, When you are around stations, just keep firing. Uh, most Bosconian machines have auto-fire, so when you're in the thick of it, just hold the button down and try to line up shots on the interior of the space station. As it said in the uh, in the previous segment, another thing you can do is to try to take out the pods flanking the interior uh, so you can actually not have the pods shooting at you while you're lining your shots up to hit the core. Although, if you want to go for points... Uh, you can just shoot all the pods to destroy the station, but at the later levels they're shooting at you constantly which gives you maybe a split second to line up a shot in order to take it out before you have to change course to avoid the shots that they're firing at you. Um, that's pretty much all I have on it. I mean, it's such an instinctive game that you know it's it's one of those games you have to constantly play to get better at. I mean, it's, it holds more true for this game than most of the old, you know, for the, from the old school era. Um, this is a game that starts off easy, but then it gets complex fairly quickly. It's a test of your reaction times and shot management, as well as planning when it comes to trying to manipulate the missile ships. It's a fun game, but it is tough. <laughs> and that's just how it is. So yeah, um, gave you some tips and gave you the history of Bosconian. Um, any thoughts, questions, comments You know what to do ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, and let's go on to the last segment of the show Which is Home Systems There's no place like home Screw you guys, I'm going home This is not a game, Max. Screw you guys, I'm going home Shall we play a game? Love to Screw you guys, I'm going home Clear I'm going home! Home Systems, the Sega Saturn. Now, I I loved this console. I didn't own it. My roommate didn't own it, but she would bring home a Saturn every once in a while. Or did she own it? I think she might have. I think she might have picked up a Saturn just before we parted ways or something like that. No, 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 no. Oh, that's right. She used to bring it home from her job when she worked at the mom and pop store. That's right. Uh, That's right. I remember now. Um, So, yeah, I mean, she'll bring it home and we play all kinds of games for it. And, you know, we liked it, even though at the time the Saturn was fairly expensive. So let's get right into the history of it. Okay. One from Wikipedia once again. The Sega Saturn is a home video game console developed by Sega and released on November 22, 1994 in Japan, May 11, 1995 in North America, and July 8, 1995 in Europe. Part of the fifth generation of video game consoles, it was the successor to to the successful Sega Genesis. The Saturn has a dual CPU architecture and eight processors its games are in a cd-rom format and its game library contains several ports of arcade games as well as original games development for the saturn began in in 1992 the same year that sega's groundbreaking 3d model 1 arcade hardware debuted the saturn was designed around a new cpu from japanese electronics company hitachi the sega saturn excuse me sega added another video display processor in early 1994 to better compete with Sony's forthcoming PlayStation. The Saturn was initially successful in Japan but failed to sell in large numbers in the United States after its surprise May 1995 launch, four months before its scheduled release date. After the debut of the Nintendo 64 in late 1996, Saturn rapidly lost its market share in the U.S., where it was discontinued in 1998. Having sold 9.26 million units worldwide, the Saturn is considered a commercial failure. The cancellation of Sonic Extreme, planned as the first 3D entry in Sega's popular Sonic the Hedgehog series, is considered a factor in its performance. The Saturn was succeeded in 1998 by the Dreamcast. Although the Saturn is remembered for several well-regarded games, including Nights into Dreams and the Panzer Dragoon series, the Virtua Fighter series also, uh its reputation is mixed due to its complex hardware design and its limited third-party support sega's management has been criticized for its decisions during the system's development and discontinuation (laughs) yeah that's for sure i thought this game this uh system had so much promise but yeah let's get right on to let's get on with it shall we okay background uh, in the early 1990s, Sega had success with the Genesis, known as the Mega Drive in most countries outside of North America. Uh, it was backed by aggressive advertising campaigns and the popularity of its Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog series. Uh, Sega also had success with arcade games in 1992 and 1993. The new Sega Model 1 Arcade System board showcased Sega's AN2 Virtual Racing and Virtual Fighter, which was the first 3D fighting game which played a crucial role in popularizing 3D polygonal graphics. The model one was expensive, so several alternatives helped bring Sega's newest arcade games to the Genesis, such as Sega Virtual Processor Chip used for virtual racing and the 32X add-on. That's interesting. I'll, I do like the 32X. I love some of the games on 32X, but let's continue. Uh, the development. Uh, Development for the Saturn was supervised by Hideki Sato, Sega's director and deputy general manager of research and development. According to Sega project manager Hideki Okamura, the project started over two years before the Saturn was showcased at the Tokyo Toy Show in June 1994. The name Saturn was initially only the codename during development. Uh, Computer Gaming World in March 1994 reported a rumor that the Sega Saturn will release in Japan before the end of the year for $250 to $300. In 1993, Sega and Japanese electronics company Hitachi formed a joint venture to develop a new CPU for the Saturn, which resulted in the Super H RISC engine, or SH-2, later that year. The Saturn was designed around a dual SH-2 configuration. According to Kazuhiro Hamada, Sega's section chief for Saturn development during the system's conception, quote, the SH-2 was chosen for reasons of cost and efficiency. The chip has a calculation system similar to a DSP, a digital signal processor, but we realize that a single CPU would not be enough to calculate a 3D world, end quote. Although the Saturn's design was largely finished before the end of 1993, reports in early 1994 of the technical capabilities of Sony's upcoming PlayStation console prompted Sega to include another video display processor to improve the system's 2D performance and 3D texture mapping. CD-ROM-based and cartridge-only versions of Saturn hardware were considered for simultaneous release during the system's development, but this idea was discarded due to concerns over the lower quality and higher price of cartridge-based games. According to Sega of America president Tom Kalinske, Sega of America, quote, fought against the architecture of Saturn for quite some time, end quote. Seeking an alternative graphics chip for the Saturn, Kalinske attempted to broker a deal with Silicon Graphics, but Sega of Japan rejected the proposal. Silicon Graphics subsequently collaborated with Nintendo on the Nintendo 64. Kalinske, Sony Electronic Publishing's Olaf Olafson, and Sony of America's Mickey Schulhoff had discussed development of a joint quote, Sega Sony hardware system, end quote, which never came to fruition due to Sega's desire to create the hardware that could accommodate both 2D and 3D visuals and Sony's competing notion of focusing on 3D technology. Publicly, Kalinsky defended the Saturn's design, quote, our people feel that they need to need the multiprocessing to be able to bring to the home what we're doing next year in the arcades, end quote. In 1993, Sega restructured its internal studios in preparation for the Saturn's launch. To ensure high-quality 3D games would be available early in the Saturn's life, and to create a more energetic working environment, developers from Sega's arcade division were asked to create console games. New teams such as Panzer Dragoon developer Team Andromeda were formed during this time. In early 1994, the Sega Titan video arcade system was announced as an arcade counterpart to the Saturn. In April 1994, Acclaim Entertainment announced that they would be the first American publisher to produce software for the Titan. In January 1994, Sega began to develop an add-on to the Genesis, the Sega 32X, to serve as a less expensive entry into the 32-bit era. The decision to create the add-on was made by Sega CEO Hayao Nakayama, and was widely supported by Sega of America employees. According to a former Sega of America producer Scott Bayless, Nakayama was worried that the Saturn would not be available until after 1994, and that the recently released Atari Jaguar would reduce Sega's hardware sales. As a result, Nakayama ordered his engineers to have a system ready for launch by the end of the year. The 32X would not be compatible with the Saturn, but Sega executive Richard Brudvik Lidner pointed out that the 32X would play Genesis games and have the same system architecture as the Saturn. That's interesting. This was justified by Sega's statement that both platforms would run at the same time and that the 32X would be aimed at players who could not afford the more expensive Saturn. Um, According to Sega of America research and development head Joe Miller, The 32X served a role in assisting development teams to familiarize themselves with the dual SH-2 architecture also used in the Saturn. Because the machines shared many parts and were prepared to launch around the same time, tensions emerged between Sega of America and Sega Sega of Japan when the Saturn was given priority. (sighs) Yeah, that's that's a problem. (laughs) That's a definite problem. Alright, let's go on to the launch. Uh, let's see, Sega released the Saturn in Japan on November 22, 1994, at a price of 44,800 yen. Uh, Virtua Fighter, the faithful port of the popular arcade game, sold at a nearly 1 to 1 ratio with the Saturn console at launch and was crucial to the system's early success in Japan. Though Sega wanted to launch with Clockwork Nike and Panzer Dragoon, the only other first party game available at launch was Wan Chai Connection. Fueled by the popularity of Virtua Fighter, Sega's initial shipment of 200,000 Saturn units sold out on the first day. Sega waited until the December 3rd launch of the PlayStation to ship more units. When both were sold side-by-side, side, the Saturn proved more popular. Meanwhile, the Sega released the 32X on November 21st, 1994, in North America. Uh, December 3, 1994 in Japan and January 1995 in PAL territories and was sold at less than half of the Saturn's launch price. At the holiday season, however, interest in the 32X rapidly declined. Half a million Saturn units were sold in Japan by the end of 1994 compared to 300,000 PlayStation units and sales exceeded 1 million within the following six months. There were conflicting reports that the PlayStation enjoyed a higher sell-through rate, and the system gradually began to overtake the Saturn in sales during 1995. Sony attracted many third-party developers to the PlayStation with a liberal $10 licensing fee, excellent development tools, and the introduction of a seven 7- to ten day order system that allowed publishers to meet demand more efficiently than the ten 10- to twelve week lead times for cartridges that had previously been standard in the Japanese video gaming industry. Yeah, this is where this is where Sony started to really gain momentum. To continue, uh, in March 1995, Sega of America CEO Tom Kalinske announced that the Saturn would be released in the U.S. on "quote unquote" Saturn Day. Jeez, Saturday, September 2nd, 1995. (laughs) However, Sega of Japan mandated an early launch to give the Saturn an advantage over the PlayStation. At the first Electronic Entertainment Expo in Los Angeles on May 11th, 1995, Kalinske gave a keynote presentation in which he revealed the release price of $399 US, including a copy of Virtua Fighter, And describe the features of the console. Uh, Kalinske also revealed that due to quote-unquote high customer demand, end quote, uh, Sega had already shipped 30,000 Saturns to Toys R Us, Babbage's, Electronics Boutique, and Software, etc. for immediate release. And sadly, none of those stores exist in the modern day. (laughs) That makes me a little sad Uh, to continue. The announcement upset retailers who were not informed of the surprise release, including Best Buy and Walmart. Uh, KB Toys responded by dropping Sega from its lineup. Wow. Sony subsequently unveiled the retail price of the PlayStation. Olaf Olafsson, the head of Sony Computer Entertainment America, summoned Steve Race to the stage, who said $299, then walked away to applause. The Saturn's release in Europe also came before the previously announced North American date on July 8, 1995, at a price of $399.99 pound sterling. Uh, European retailers and press did not have the time to promote the system or its games, harming sales. The PlayStation launched in Europe on September 29, 1995. Uh, by November, it had already outsold the Saturn by a factor of three in the United Kingdom, where Sony had allocated 20 million pounds of marketing during the holiday season, uh, compared to Sega's 4 million pounds. Yet, this is where things started to really get sideways. Uh, The Saturn's U.S. launch was accompanied by a reported $50 million advertising campaign that included coverage in publications such as Wired and Playboy. Early advertising for the system was targeted at a more mature adult audience than Sega Genesis ads. Because of the early launch, the Saturn only had six games, all published by by Sega, uh, available at the start, as most third-party games were slated to be released around the original launch date. Virtual Fighter's relative lack of popularity in the West, combined with a release schedule of only two games between the surprise launch and September 1995, prevented Sega from capitalizing on Saturn's early timing. Uh, within two days of its September 9th 1995 launch in America, the PlayStation, backed by a large marketing campaign, sold more units than the Saturn had in the five months su- following its surprise launch, with almost all of the initial shipment of 100,000 units being sold in advance and the rest selling out across the U.S. A high-quality port of the Namco arcade game Ridge Racer contributed to the PlayStation's early success and garnered favorable media in comparison to the Saturn's version of Sega's Daytona USA, which was considered inferior to its arcade counterpart. Namco, a long-time arcade competitor with Sega, also unveiled the Namco System 11 arcade board based on raw PlayStation hardware. Although the System 11 was technically inferior to Sega's Model 2 arcade board, its lower price made it attractive to smaller arcades. Following a 1994 acquisition of Sega developers, Namco released Tekken for the System 11 and PlayStation. Directed by former Virtua Fighter designer Seichi Ishii, Tekken was intended to be fundamentally similar with the addition of detailed textures and twice the frame rate. Tekken passed Virtua Fighter in popularity due to its superior graphics and nearly arcade-perfect console port, becoming the first million-selling PlayStation game. On October 2, 1995, Sega announced a Saturn price reduction to $299. High-quality Saturn ports of the Sega Model 2 arcade game hits... Uh, Sega Rally Championship, Virtua Cop, and Virtua Fighter 2, running at 60 frames per second at a high resolution, were available by the end of the year and were generally regarded as superior competitors to the, on the PlayStation. Uh, notwithstanding a subsequent increase in Saturn sales during the 1995 holiday season, the games were not enough to reverse the PlayStation's decisive lead. Uh, By 1996, the PlayStation had a considerably larger library than the Saturn, although Sega had hoped to generate interest with upcoming exclusives such as Nights into Dreams, which was a very interesting game, mind you. Um, An informal survey of retailers showed that the Saturn and PlayStation sold in roughly equal numbers during the first quarter of 1996. Within its first year, the PlayStation secured over 20% of the entire U.S. video game market. On the first day of the May 1996 E3 show, Sony announced a PlayStation price reduction to $199, a reaction to the release of the Model 2 Saturn in Japan at a price roughly equivalent to $199. On the second day, Sega announced that it would match this price, though Saturn hardware was more expensive to manufacture. Yeah. See, they got they really they messed up in a lot of ways, and then they've were on the back foot ever since then okay uh continue to continue uh despite the launch of the playstation and saturn sales of 16-bit games and consoles continued to account for 64 percent of the video game market in 1995 sega underestimated the continued popularity of the genesis and did not have the inventory to meet demand sega was able to capture 43 percent of the dollar share of the U.S. video game market and sold more than 2 million Genesis units in 1995, but Kalinske estimated that, quote, we could have sold another 300,000 Genesis systems in the November-December time frame, end quote. Nakayama's decision to focus on the Saturn over the Genesis, based on the system's relative performance in Japan, has been cited as the major contributing factor in this miscalculation. Yeah, this is where it really started to go downhill for Sega. That's for sure. Uh, Let's see. To continue, due to long-standing disagreements with SEGA of Japan, Kalinske lost interest in his work as CEO of SEGA of America. By early 1996, rumors were circulating that Kalinske planned to leave SEGA, and a July 13th article in the press reported speculation that SEGA of Japan was planning significant changes to SEGA of America's management. On July 16, 1996, SEGA announced that Kalinski would leave SEGA after September thirtieth, and that Shoichiro Irimajiri had been appointed as chairman and CEO of SEGA of America. A former Honda executive, Irimajiri had been involved with SEGA of America since joining SEGA in 1993. Sega also announced that David Rosen and Nakayama had resigned from their positions as chairman and co-chairman of Sega of America, though both remained with the company. Bernie Stolar, a former executive at Sony Computer Entertainment of America, was named Sega of America's executive vice president in charge of product development and third-party relations. Stolar, who had arranged a six-month PlayStation exclusivity deal for Mortal Kombat 3 and helped build close relations with Electronic Arts while at Sony, was perceived as a major asset by Sega officials. Finally, Sega of America made plans to expand its PC software business. Stolar was not supportive of the Saturn, feeling it was poorly designed, and publicly announced at E3 in 1997 that, quote, the Saturn is not our future, end quote. While Stolar, quote, had no interest in lying to people, end quote, about the Saturn's prospects, he continued to emphasize quality games for the system, and later said that, quote, we tried to wind it down as cleanly as we could for the consumer, end quote. At, Sto- at Sony, Stolar had opposed the localization of Japanese games that he felt would not represent the PlayStation well in North America, and advocated a similar policy for the Saturn, although later he sought to distance himself from this perception. These changes were accompanied by a softer image that Sega was beginning to portray in its advertising, including removing the Sega scream and holding press events for the education industry. Marketing for the Saturn in Japan also changed with the introduction of the Sagata Sanshiro, played by... Uh, Hiroshi Fujioka, a character in a series of TV advertisements starting in 1997, the character eventually starred in a Saturn game. Temporarily abandoning abandoning arcade development, Sega AM2 head Yu Suzuki started uh, developing several several Saturn-exclusive games, including a role-playing game in the Virtua Fighter series. Uh, Initially conceived as an obscure prototype, The Old Man in the Peach Tree and intended to address the flaws of contemporary Japanese RPGs such as poor non-player character artificial intelligence routines. Virtual Fighter RPG evolved into a planned 11-part, 45-hour revenge epic in the tradition of Chinese cinema, which Suzuki hoped would become Saturn's killer app. The game was eventually released was eventually released as Shenmue for the Saturn's successor, the Dreamcast. Wow, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Okay, okay let's go into the decline real quick. Uh, from 1993 to early 1996, although Sega's revenue declined as part of an industry-wide slowdown, the company retained control of 38% of the U.S. video game market compared to Nintendo's 30% and Sony's 24%. 800,000 PlayStation units were sold in the U.S. by the end of 1995, compared to 400,000 Saturn units. In part due to an aggressive price war, the PlayStation outsold the Saturn by 2 to 1 in 1996, while Sega's 16-bit sales declined markedly. Uh, By the end of 1996, the PlayStation had sold 2.9 million units in the U.S., more than twice the 1.2 million Saturn units sold. The Christmas 1996 3 Free Pack, which bundled the Saturn with Daytona USA, Virtua Fighter 2, and Virtual Cop, drove sales dramatically and ensured the Saturn remained a competitor into 1997. However, the Saturn failed to take the lead. After the launch of the Nintendo 64 in 1996, sales of the Saturn and its games were sharply reduced while the PlayStation outsold the Saturn by 3 to 1 in the US in 1997. The 1997 release of Final Fantasy VII increased the PlayStation's popularity in Japan. As of August 1997, Sony controlled 47% of the console market, Nintendo 40% and Sega only 12%. Neither price cuts nor high-profile game releases proved helpful. Reflecting decreased demand for the system, worldwide Saturn shipments during March to September 1997 declined from 2.35 million to 600,000 versus the same period in 1996. Shipments in North America declined from 800,000 to 50,000. Due to the Saturn's poor performance in North America, 60 of Sega of America's 200 employees were laid off in late 1997. Wow. Wow yeah it started it really started to gain momentum and not in a good way as a result of sega's deteriorating financial situation nakayama resigned as president in january of 1998 in favor of erima jiri stolar subsequently acceded to president of sega of america following five years of generally declining profits in the fiscal year ending march 31st 1998 SEGA suffered its first parent and consolidated financial losses since its 1988 listing on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Due to a 548 decline in consumer product sales, including a 75.4% decline overseas, Ouch! the company reported a net loss of 43.3 billion yen, or $327.8 million, and considered a net loss of $35.6 billion, or $269.8 million US dollars. Shortly before announcing its financial losses, Sega announced that it was discontinuing the Saturn in North America to prepare for the launch of its successor. Only 12 Saturn games were released in North America in 1998. Magic Knight Ray Earth was the final official release. Compared to 119 in 1996, the Saturn would last longer in Japan. Rumors about the upcoming Dreamcast, spread mainly by Sega itself, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me, were leaked to the public before the last Saturn games were released. The Dreamcast was released on November 27, 1998 in Japan and September 9, 1999 in North America. The decision to abandon the Saturn effectively left the Western market without Sega games for over one year. Sega suffered an additional 42.881 billion yen consolidated net loss in the fiscal year ending March 1999 and announced plans to eliminate 1,000 jobs nearly a quarter of its workforce. (laughs) And the hits keep on coming. Jeez. Um, Worldwide Saturn sales include at least the following amounts in each territory. 5.75 million in Japan, which surpasses Sega Genesis sales of 3.58 million, 1.8 million in the United States, 1 million in Europe, and 530,000 elsewhere. With lifetime sales of 9.26 million units, the Saturn is considered a commercial failure, although its install base in Japan surpassed the Nintendo 64's 5.54 million. Lack of distribution has been cited as a significant factor contributing to the Saturn's failure, as the system's surprise launch damaged Sega's reputation with key retailers. Conversely, Sega, Nintendo's long delay in releasing a 3D console and damage to, caused to Sega's reputation by poorly supported add ons for the Genesis are considered major, major factors, allowing Sony to gain a foothold in the market. <laughs> wow. Uh, let's see, they got technical specifications, and they got stuff about their game li- library and the reputation and legacy. And um, and it's a, lot, it's a lot there. So, um, yeah, all you got to do is look it up on Wikipedia, just enter Sega Saturn in the search, and it'll take you right to this stuff. Okay. <clears throat> my experiences with the Saturn were pretty limited, as the only place I could play games on it was my roommate's place of work, which was a mom-and-pop movie and video game rental store near the Florida Mall. Uh, I remember that its port of Street Fighter Alpha 2 was nearly flawless, and games like Guardian Heroes and Shining Force 3 really piqued my interest. I think the Saturn gets a little bit of a bum rap, but at the same time, Sega really started dropping the ball with this system and its successor, the Dreamcast, which would lead Sega to get out of the home gaming market altogether, which was unfortunate. Uh, I think once the video gaming prices on the used market go down, I'm going to see about getting a Saturn with some of the games I really liked back in the day. (laughs) <laughs> and that's the Saturn in a nutshell. <laughs> wow. I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was that bad. So, yeah, uh, any thoughts, comments? Do you own a Saturn? Did you own a Saturn back in the day? Let me know what you thought of it. ArcadeAddingBrian at, at com. Okay, and that's episode 44. So, I'm going to try and get this out by the end of next week. And then we're going to turn right around and go right to... Episode 45, which is, I think, the last one. Let me just check it. No, second to last one before I start talking about the Chicago trip. So hang in there, guys. Uh, let's see. For episode 45, we have an arcade review. We have our experience in Time for Strategy, of course. And we also have the Silver Ball. And we also have an on the road segment. So stay tuned for all of that. So until next time, this is Brian saying. Have fun out there, good gaming, au revoir, stay safe. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbryan at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of the Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.